Welcome to a Eurovision special of Pop Could Never Save Us with myself, Holly Boson, and I'm joined here by my good friend, James Murphy. Here I stand in a glittering ball gown, perfectly poised in front of the eyes of the world as I give out no points. That's right, it is the hangover from the Eurovision special, which is good, Holly. It's a unique time in British pop music, really, because most of the year, anything that comes from Europe is looked at askance, as if it was somehow backwards, and actually see another country's culture, albeit the very mainstream of it, is, yeah, it's quite unique in Britain, actually, sadly. My Twitter friend, Tom Ewing, who runs the blog Popular, made a video breaking down his theory that the British chauvinism to do with Europop possibly caused Brexit. What British people associate with Eurovision is a lot of foreign cheese to make fun of. There's this attitude of being in on the joke and being the only people in on the joke, even though it's very clear that the other countries who make joke entries are also very in on the joke. For a long time, the Eurovision Song Contest did produce extraordinarily low quality music. But around the time the Berlin Wall fell and former USSR countries started joining up to the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union, they saw their membership of the Eurovision Song Contest as proof of their own independence and started to submit much more high-quality work. Britain was, in the mid-2000s, very much stuck on making frivolous novelty records. Pull firmly on the red cord and blow into the mouthpiece. If Adele entered Eurovision and lost, she would come off looking completely ridiculous. She would get nothing out of it and she would make no money. (laughs) Therefore, for a long time, the only acts that we could actually get to perform for us for Eurovision were no names. Or they were fading old legends like Engelbert Humperdinck. Someone follow your heart Cause love comes once If you're lucky enough Nobody really got anywhere because other countries were submitting people who were like the biggest pop star in their countries because they didn't have access to the Anglophone media dominance that Britain has. People really do love British pop music all across the world and If you speak to Europeans about our participation in Eurovision, they're always confused. Why are we sending these losers? (laughs) Like the isolated nerd kid who convinces himself that because nobody wants to hang out with him, it's because he's all very special and cool. Britain developed this incredibly condescending attitude towards Eurovision, where it was believed that we would never win anything because they all hate us and we all hate them. Um, But last year in 2022 we sent in sam Ryder, who was a tiktok star of some renown who performed a fantastic song called spaceman the universe, so 
slight pastiche but with original ideas of a lot of stuff that is great about classic British pop. It's evoking Bowie, it's evoking Queen. Britain actually came second in the Eurovision Song Contest, losing to... Ukraine's Kalush Orchestra, which was like the absolute definition of a political vote. And so Tom Ewing reckoned that this condescending attitude to Eurovision and the Europeans as a whole, I suppose that being one of the few times of the year when England is permitted to, or even given the opportunity to, mm. take in a pan-European culture, led to a entrenchment of British kind of chauvinism against the surrounding continent and brought us to that 52-48 vote which continues to break the country. Do you remember this song that we actually submitted in 2016? Joe and Jake. There is certainly room for politics, but yeah, this condescending attitude towards Europe. People in other countries, whenever they talk about what they like seeing about Eurovision, they always talk about how their favourite thing is seeing other cultures and um, what other countries can do musically. In Britain, they always say they like seeing the bad songs and the funny hats. You watch Eurovision, you get drunk with Graham Norton or previously Terry Woden, whose condescending attitude to the whole proceedings trying to find things despite him being a great broadcaster. And it was, look at these silly people. They're not people like we are. They are beneath us. They're not as clever. They don't get it the way that we do. And that's, for my entire lifetime, been the tone of the TV coverage of Eurovision and the lead-up and all the excitement. There's been seven degrees of irony. I think... Some of it is starting to be taken a little bit more seriously now, thanks to the internet. It's easier to look up who these people actually are. There's also a very necessary LGBT element to Eurovision. It's always been considered to be when European gays can party. Even considering the homophobia and increasingly transphobia that is starting to take hold in British institutions, we still have it better than a lot of the other countries that participate in Eurovision. Turkey he no longer participates due to the fact that a girl on girl kiss was broadcast in a Finnish entry marry me in 2013 and Russia no longer participates due to a moral panic that was ripped up by the far right in Russia about the Eurovision winner Conchita Wurst, who won for Austria with the song Rise Like a Phoenix while being a bearded drag queen. It's a little bit embarrassing and a shame that so show business an event and one that we receive through the BBC has become the front line 
of not just a culture war because it undersells things to just call it that, but an attack on the most vulnerable minorities in our society at the moment. Mm. Eurovision can stand proudly as an LGBT celebration of all that is wonderful and to take it from the slant that we have always looked at Europe through Eurovision in Britain, I think probably hurts this country's ability to appreciate the LGBT people that are within it as well. Yeah. Um, And I mean, obviously, LGBT culture isn't very serious all the time. It's also a dating culture. It's about partying and making art. But listeners need to understand that people laughing at Conchita Verst as being a man in a dress has linked onto some incredibly ugly transphobia that has been pumped into our country from every available legacy outlet as a blatant divide and conquer attempt. The casual sneering at Eurovision isn't just xenophobic, it's also homophobic. Eurovision must be protected, which is not something I expected to get to in about 2004. (laughs) I don't know if Eurovision songs in the past traditionally showed up on the charts. Back in the old days before the internet, people would have to actually go out and find a CD of these songs. And that wasn't so easy. Supermarkets would only carry what was in the supermarkets charts, which was their version of the charts where they could remove songs they didn't like. I was interested to see how the chart positions of the Eurovision songs related to the actual number of points that the British voting public gave them. So I did write down that tally. They've burst out of this little ghetto. They are now being played on the mainstream radio. These songs are becoming part of our musical background. It's possible they could grow outside of a Eurovision context now. Yeah, um, Maniskin, actually, is, is a great success story. They were the Italian entries for Eurovision. But they're now pretty much a cult act. They're big enough that Pitchfork made a really nasty review making fun of them. Baptism of fire. (laughs) All acts must go through. (laughs) Yeah. Should we actually reach in at the top with Laureen and Tattoo? Absolutely. No one will care about the obviously the winner of Eurovision and it comes from Sweden coming to it independently I'm finding myself thinking this is an unusually strong melody for the charts just at the moment god I really like this oh hold on there is a haunting familiarity to what's going on here (laughs) but baby we both know this is not a time it's time to say goodbye. Oh my god, it's Abba's The Winner Takes It All. I don't want to talk about things we've gone through, though it's hurting me. Now it's history. Sweden, Eurovision, of course. Um, it isn't fair to call it a straight lift. But there's no way in the world that this wasn't intentionally done. And it starts to mutate away from those chiming pianos and the similar phrasing to become a song of its own. 
but it does seem to almost sample ABBA, um, which yes. is my favourite part of the song. I think it kind of gets off track when it goes away from that world-beating melody. And my God, ABBA's tunes, I don't care who you are, they are some of the finest things on earth. They are honeyed opium in eardrop form. They really are. To hear this song take its own path away from that tune, you can't help but feel a little bit disappointed. It's much more interesting if they had done something that was closer to a straight cover for that song. But that wouldn't have been eligible, would it? No, exactly. No, it wouldn't have been a new song. Lorene's um, tattoo has been getting a lot of hate from the online Eurovision geek community because it was not the audience favourite. It was very strongly the favourite of the panel. However, Tattoo has actually been charting higher than this other song. Um, it went to number two in the charts, I believe. So, um, Loreen previously swept everything overpoweringly, complete utter shameless victory in 2012. The conspiracy theory is that they gave Lorene this particular contest with this particular song that evokes ABBA so that Sweden could be hosting the Eurovision Song Contest on the 50th anniversary of Waterloo. that i did actually really enjoy this song in addition to the references to abba here i think there's also like a very clear lineage to the way that um dennis pop's chiron studios completely reshaped um modern pop music um for those who don't know the reason sweden makes incredibly successful pop music is because the swedish political right at one point decided to fund mandatory musical education for everyone on school in school so everyone got a classical music education and therefore wouldn't listen to all that stupid rock music like the Beatles. Um, and the result was all the kids just learned how to play piano and then used it to write pop music. So Swedish pop music is unusually melodic. It does have this very strong sort of influence from classical progressions. It's very much craftsman's genre. And that was the reason why Swedish pop music ended up being the backbone of the teen pop invasion of the turn of the millennium. Britney Spears was produced by Max Martin, who was the protege of Dennis Pop. Dennis Pop's biggest act was Ace of Bass. Certainly, Ace of Bass best being known for all that she wants. Great single, a nice piece of bent reggae. Don't look up their political beliefs. <laughs> but yeah, I can hear that. I can hear those old-fashioned synthesizers that are in the backbone of this song. 
I'm surprised by how powerful it is. There's one thing that I like about the song a surprising amount, which is that the title of the song is sung by Loreen in a way that is so heavily muffled you don't even really notice what it is. And it's the central image of the song. You gotta love a good guttural slot, didn't you? Perfectly done, Ellery. Mm. How was the performance? She was between two large yellow light-up boxes, dressed in a skin-tight suit with terrifying long nails um, and writhing. Seems right. It was very intense and quite beautiful. Yeah, and that's something that's great about Eurovision as well, is that it's an intensely live show. And because of that, you get people who fumble because of nerves. There's often a lot of people especially now who come from a more digital background who just are used to making their music in their rooms or to small gigs, putting things out on YouTube, and then faced with the eyes of the entire world upon them, you can see them unfortunately crumble. And that did happen to one of our entries this time out. Oh, well, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, our entries have pretty bad luck with that. The legendary Gemini, a British act that got null poids in the mid-2000s, they had some sort of headset issue. Blame the headset, guys. <laughs> no, <laughs> when it starts to bend away from the original melody and takes itself down this, uh, it's almost a dubstepy course it goes to. The beats drop heavy enough for it to be like that. Um, I think, yeah, that's when the real passion of the song comes through. And it's got those swooping dynamics that I associate with every Eurovision song, whether it be a dance-related track or a big ballad. There's just a moment that seems to be built into these where the song lifts into the stratosphere and it manages to do that well. Should we move on? Yep, yeah, I'm ready to. So what's next? I have no idea how to pronounce this artist's name, unfortunately. I think it's Karia. So we have Cha 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 by Karia. So this song was much more interesting to me than Tattoo. Um, this was Finland's entry. Finland's entry, exactly. It's got an unhinged unexpectedness. It's quite annoying <laughs> in a way that I like. Um, we are, of course, dealing with a generation of musicians now who came of age when Crazy Folk was starting, and I think there's some of that influence in there. Break, break Jay from the in-between that's desperately trying to dance to this whilst impressing nobody. So Finland's main musical export is heavy metal and Finland even won Eurovision with Lordi with Hard Rock Hallelujah. On the day of reckoning and Judas wins You will see the Joker soon will be the new kings Oh it is And you feel this kind of heavy metal vibe going through this song, even as it is clearly an electronic EDM, a bit of dance pop, really. 
I think this is one where the version on the record is actually inferior to the version that we got in the live performance. In the live performance, he's really screaming all these lyrics so he can be heard. <laughs> And I think in the recorded version, a lot of the little hey ad-libs come off as very fey and polite. But that may be part of the joke, because the conceit of the song is that it's a man going out and getting drunk so he can have permission to party. The song sort of dramatises this emotional journey, and it's it's sort of a parody of um, the way Finns see themselves as a culture, which is that they're a very reserved culture who have to get a lot of drink in them before they can have any fun. For the verses, he's knocking back pina coladas, which is a beautiful writing detail, actually. Drink for someone who is trying to be hard, but he's still not feeling it. He's still not able to uh, really let himself cut loose. And then uh, two-thirds of the way into the song, there's this kind of beat switch and it goes into this more stereotypically poppy kind of sonic character. In the recorded version, there's heavy auto-tune on the lead vocals during this section. In the um, performance, at this point, he breaks out with a bunch of scary, happy, pink-clad dancers with fake veneers who dance around and pose like stereotypical Eurovision dancers. And then that is supposed to reflect the, um, the alcohol taking control of his body as he can just sing and dance and embarrass himself freely. <laughs> and um, in the music video, which I don't know how many people actually even bothered to watch, it's represented with a boxing match and that part takes place when the main character has been knocked out and he does like a funny drag performance as what I'm assuming is a, a famous Finnish celebrity. Much this song works for me. It's one of my favourites of the Eurovisions. But another way that the recorded version is inferior to the live performance is the keyboards are mixed much too high. There's that synth sound that just overtakes the kind of metal influence backbeat and i think it's quite ugly this was the people's favorite this got douze points from the uk sweden only got five <laughs> yeah so this was clearly much more popular than the winner seemed to be at least in the uk is that right Have i understood that correctly at least in the polling it did a lot better people seem to be streaming tattoo more i think it it succeeds at doing a lot of things. It's also not really a song that I would expect to find outside of the Eurovision context, even if it was in English. There's that combination of Finnish national pride, but also just this fusion of genres that just wouldn't make sense in, in the commercial charts. You can't have fun if you're trying to be cool. That's what the song is about. Exactly. So next on our list now is Queen of Kings by Alessandra. Hey, Queen of the Kings, the run is the first bit of the wind. Broken her case, the keys. She will be the warrior for north and south seas. 
This one was from Norway. Norway won in 2009 with Fairy Tale by Alexander Ryback. That was then, but then it's true. violinist. Right, yes, I do. A lot of the Norwegian entries have a bit of a folk music vibe. It's a traditional-ish melody. It is an empowerment ballad, but it's a strange kind of empowerment ballad. The imagery here is so extreme that it becomes ridiculous. The strong female character at the heart of this female empowerment ballad isn't just a woman, she's like a warrior. She is a, She rules the seven seas, she kills people. And I can't help but relate to it with Eurovision always being like a few years behind where all the fads are and things like that. It does seem reminiscent of those um, that year when sea shanties were the big thing. Do you remember there was that dance pop version of Wellerman? Yes, and that was a golden time to which we must return soon. I think of this as being her attempt to do a sea shanty thing, and I think that might be the reason for this being so popular. Despite the fact that the melody is a traditional folk melody, when the production kicks in, it's doing heavy EDM, similar to the to the style of that Tiesto 1035 song that we've already talked about. So I can see how this would fit in on the radio. It's just eccentric. Yeah, and it's got a powerful video as well. Um, it seems to be dystopian influence. There's something along the lines of Handmaid's Tale, which I think helps to soften the mad, megamaniacal bent of the lyrics. Um, at the same time, however, I wonder if I would find the lyrics quite so unusual if they'd come from a male vocalist. I think it's rare that we get an opportunity to see this witchy power um, chop down the mountain with the edge of my hand. Uh, yeah, I, I do really like this one. It's another good one from the Eurovision slate. Alessandra claims the song is about growing up bisexual in a small Norwegian town where people didn't have acceptance for it. Then, of course, it's all tied together with the big virtuosic whistle register note, right? Always a good trick when you're trying to perform for a stadium. In fact, the only thing that's missing here is a truck driver's key change. Yeah. <laughs> I would have liked that. I think those are good. It's pulling out every trick in the bag, this is. And it's pulling them off with a plum as well. I don't judge it for that. And I don't think there's any cynicism. I think that these are just craftsmen who, much like the Swedes, who are extremely well educated in their musical theory understand the way a song should be written or understand which audience they're writing for. This scored somewhere in the lower middle of the British polling. Norway was awarded seven points. That's nonsense, I'm sorry. <laughs> which is slightly below Poland who always score a load from the UK because we have a lot of um, people of Polish extraction yeah. living here. Belgium got six. Is it selling a better degree than it was pointed? Yeah. I would have expected Israel's entry. A unicorn by Noah Carell to have done better. That song came third in the overall poll and has this um, incredibly naked professionalism about it, like a proper pop star. But it seems like people haven't really gone in for streaming that one. It's gonna be phenomen, phenomen, phenomenal, phenomen, phenomenal, feminine, feminine, feminine. I'm gonna stand it like a unicorn. Oh, 
in some ways that professionalism, that slickness works against it because it, it buries yes. the overall feel of things. Whereas something like this, the quirkiness is the point. And I think we react quite well to that in this country. Yeah. And in fact, talking of Britain's love of novelty music, <sighs> we mentioned this before briefly with Mae Stevens, that Britain just has like a bit of a thing for making funny pop music and always has done. We now move on to Britain's entry in 2023, which is I Wrote a Song by Mae Muller. was not very popular. I think it came close to last in the in the contest. But we seem to have taken her to heart. And I think it is that there's a sense of humour here that possibly doesn't translate. Yeah, I think that's probably true, actually. I think that these lyrics that are about a person who's furious and is going to reach out some vengeance on a cheating boyfriend, but instead puts all of those emotions into a song... It's kind of ironic at its heart. And I think she's a very modern British person. I think she's extremely online. I get that sense from her, uh, her writing. Yeah. I mean, the opening couplet of this song is devastating. When you said you were leaving To work on your mental health You didn't mention the cheating It manages to perfectly characterise a very specific, very discoursed about online type of guy um, in the job of two rhyming lines. Um, and it's so effective, she doesn't need to really describe very much else about this guy for the whole of the thing. We can fill it in ourselves. We get into the chorus extremely quickly as well. It's handled within about 30 seconds. After that, we still have time for a little bit of la 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 sing along. We're dealing with a Balkan beat, which is not something that we see in a lot of British pop music. Balkan beats is a modern club centric version of traditional Balkan music. Now, I wonder if that was one of the reasons why this didn't do as well as Spaceman. Europe found it a bit pandering. Yeah, no one likes to be pandered to. And yeah, just be yourself confidently and presently be yourself. It's the same excuse for dating as it is for Eurovision. I liked the fact that it sounded like a proper Eurovision song because it sounded like we've finally learned how to actually make Eurovision entries. Um, and I'm a bit disappointed that it didn't work. <laughs> In this day and age with not only the entire past open to us, but also the output of other countries. We can get out and stream something from Israel after streaming something from Turkey and all of that just being the kind of booyah bays that we create our art out of. We can have this international pop sound. It's extremely appealing for that reason. Um, but yeah, 
I think you're right that if this had been more uh, British sounding, if it had wrapped itself up in the Union Jack a little bit more so, then it probably would have done better. And also, had poor May Muller not had a nightmare of an evening as well, that definitely oh, hurt us. My heart goes out to her. She ruined her voice in rehearsal. She put out what I think was a a basically competent rendition of it. Yeah, and that's a nightmare to hear is someone who's got a gift and is unable to make use of it, whether it be temporarily or in a longer term way. Yeah, um, I am I am really glad that the British public seem to have taken to her and given her a hit, though. Um, <laughs> it's a shame we don't have um, a Top of the Pops anymore because I would have loved to have seen her on it. We really need a Top of the Pops. She's fits perfectly, despite the arguably un-British sound. She fits perfectly on your greatest hits radios in between Red Flags and Calvin Harris. I guess that brings us to the end of the European block, right? But out of the remaining songs that we're going to cover, because this is, of course, a two-weekly show, um, there's certainly elements of Europop in the remaining entries. Um, Should we talk about Giving Me by Jazzy? Sure, yeah. This is a nice upbeat house music track. It doesn't have an awful lot to distinguish it from stuff that I was hearing in the mid-90s. It comes from a woman of Jamaican-Irish heritage who's born and brought up there, and there's a nice lilt to her accent that I really just like. This feeling that I know you're giving me No lies, you're loving me Hugging me, touching me it doesn't necessarily stick in my head after I've listened to it. It still feels like something that could have gone into Eurovision quite easily as well. Yeah, as a sort of music geek, the basic instrument that Giving Me is based on is the M1 organ preset. supposed to be that of a tone wheel organ but it doesn't really sound like one and so it was used in millions of 90s dance songs as a bass instrument as well as in any pop song trying to go for a retro dance vibe is the M1 organ sound has these strange harmonics that make it sound almost like a chord. Right. When Jazzy's vocal comes in, she's actually singing along with the harmonics rather than the bass note of the M1, which throws my ear off in a really pleasing way. Listen to her ad libs as well. They're also uh, on like some kind of um, completely different but musically logical scale system. That's fascinating. I would never have picked up on that. All uh, my tin ears heard was a euphoric dance number like any other. So, yeah, I'm impressed by a song that just moments ago I was pretty blah on. I was a bit mid on. Oh, yeah, thank you for that. 
the thing is, we have we have one more song which has like an obvious European connection, but I sort of feel we're going to have a lot more to say about it. So maybe we should talk about Lana Del Rey first instead. Lana Del Rey's "Say Yes to Heaven." song is the meta knowledge i have that this was never intended for release this mm. was just an off cut that got leaked to the internet and proved to be extremely popular and so that first of all lowers my guard with it because i feel like i'm getting an opportunity to rifle through somebody's notebook obviously there's been work done on it since um obviously it's been polished up for release but that does let me forgive some of the weaknesses of the track, such mm. as the fact that it's another Lana Del Rey song doing the Lana Del Rey thing. However, yeah. <laughs> in a chart that's very much defined by mono sound, by the same kind of repeating beat, to hear a song that's so different to that if not necessarily different to the artist's other work is a relief to me I, I cling to this and little arpeggios on the guitar in the background I've got my eye on you the way she sings like Barbara Streisand meets Nancy Sinatra I know I'm being pandered to like a Eurovision audience by May Muller but at the same time, I'm also just enjoying this landscape of sound. The lyrics just pass by me. I know they're meaningless. She's written video games again, it seems. It's um, not as good as video games, though, is I, it? I agree. Really? I agree. I the bestest, leaning for a big kiss, put his favorite perfume on, go play a video game. Lana Del Rey, and it's kind of embarrassing to admit, is probably one of my formative influences because I was really into her at the time that I was first learning to write songs. But I have felt no real urge to revisit her or her music since. At the time I was listening to a lot of Lana Del Rey, I it was at the time of my development where if you're if you're like an arty young person of a certain social class you start looking back into the past for things that inspire you and I at this point was completely obsessed with Sergio Leone movies and I think I may have worn a cowboy hat more than once So to me, songs like Blue Jeans, where she's singing about being in love with a bad boy who wears blue jeans and with this twangy spaghetti western electric guitar was just like, yeah, that's what adulthood is going to be like. I was also on Citralopram um, because I thought I had depression. Instead, I had untreated ADHD and now I have the ADHD treated. A lot of this stuff is just too gloopy for me. I need stuff now that is like happier and busier. I did actually throw on Born to Die again as preparation for this episode and I managed to make it through about the first seven tracks, enjoying bits and pieces and finding bits of it brilliant. 
until I just got a little bit too sick of the constant singing like this. Like she sings with this permanent pout and it just starts to wind me up after a while, which is a shame because one of the things she really has going for her is she has a really unusual voice that she can do a lot with. Yeah. And my favorite Lana song, by the way, is Off to the Races. What she does with her vocals in that is completely bananas. She goes into these sort of Tex Avery cartoon girl, Betty Boop tweeting. But also this strange kind of improvised jazz singing that is more like rapping. Um, and it goes with this kind of hip hop inflected production she had running all the way through Born to Die. And also her 60s references when she throws them in are like dark. She's quoting from Lolita. Idea of this nymphette who is actually like crazier than the guy who is in love with her. Lana Del Rey did actually cite her main songwriting influence as Eminem. She has a similar knack to him for finding images that are just disgusting. Unfortunately, with Lana, it's all very superficial until she starts to get properly into her 30s and starts to uh, really push her songwriting out. Um, I didn't know that this was an offcut from Ultraviolence, which um, I think was where I lost my interest in Lana because it was very much the same as Born to Die except now there isn't any percussion. All of the things about her that first made her really stand out start to just really come back. She's always wearing a red dress. She suddenly quotes something you know from the 1960s. Um, it just starts to really wear on you. Um, all of those cliches are like really here as well. She uses give peace a chance as one of the first things she says. To me, I heard this and it felt like stuff that Lana had already done. Her modern stuff, it's certainly not significantly different enough from her early stuff for it to feel like a proper development, but lyrically she's developed significantly, you know. It's because she's in a world preserved only if you have found the door It's like Maria, only silver mirrors running down the corridor She's still just running in mixed metaphors. What the fuck? A barge? <laughs> you don't put a barge in the sea. A barge goes in a canal. Also, a barge in the sea would be a completely um, chaotic vessel and not a steadfast vessel waiting for a loved one. It's just a, an atrocious metaphor. It's clear that it was just something she wrote because it sounded good. And you get the lyrics like, um, if you fight, I'll fight. It doesn't matter now. It's all gone. That's a filler line. When I first heard this, I was really disappointed. I thought Lana had just turned into an absolute caricature of herself. But then I realised it was something that she didn't think was good enough for 
that her album Ultraviolence, I think she was right. But it is disappointing that this is, in fact, Lana Del Rey's first top 10 since 2012, because she's been putting out loads of critically acclaimed work since then that is way better than this. I think there's a certain kind of person who just wants Lana Del Rey to be doing Lana Del Rey stuff. She's already sort of gone beyond what she's supposed to be doing, which is providing um, vintage ambience for when you're trying on a 90 60s wiggle dress it must be so strange as an artist to have worked that you more or less threw into a waste paper basket be dug out enjoyed and then to beat stuff that you felt was good enough to release it's a bizarre place to be i guess the difference here between you and i the reason i think i've reacted quite well to it whereas you have had a less positive reaction comes down to how invested we are in lana as an artist i'm perfectly happy to hear del rey lana of the king um do her thing because I don't hear it very often. I don't seek out that music enough and I never really spent time with those albums. I don't know if invested is the right word to describe it. I don't consider myself to be a Lana Del Rey fan now. <laughs> I feel I outgrew it. Yeah, you've got a history with it. I don't mean that to say that if you like Lana Del Rey right now, that you are a baby. It's not the right music for me at this time in my life. So it's kind of embarrassing to me to look back on the time when I was just listening to this thinking, oh my God, this is so good. I'm going to move to California and I'm going to have sex with a man who hates me. <laughs> <laughs> the things that I react against this are the same things that I've never jived well with in Lana Del Rey's performances and persona. It's very mannered. It's very posed. It's very poised. I want yes. her to stop playing it safe, and I want her to rip out her vocal cords and take some risks. This is a risk-free song. She absolutely can take risks vocally, and um, lyrically she can get pretty edgy, but she doesn't do any of that here. Lana was very heavily discredited at the beginning of the 2010s because she was a bit of a favourite of all these hipster blogs who then found out that Lana was in fact a persona. And then she spent ages kind of being rinsed by the discourse circuit. It was appropriative because she picked this name because it sounded Spanish and because she uses all these kind of hip-hop affectations in her music. This idea of her being a rich girl, which she was, who'd failed to attract attention in her previous guise as a singer-songwriter and therefore invented this alter ego. And a lot of it was just straight up sexist and horrible. Sure. People speculating about what plastic surgery she'd had done or whatever. It was a really different time in the early 2010s. Hipsters were still like doing ironic racism, but a lot of them were also into like the your favourite problematic thing. Lana was writing these problematic songs about women who are getting abused and beaten up. She wrote one about Harvey Weinstein. There's like this deep cynicism at the heart of her artistic project. Lana added more artists into her sort of syncretism. Um, she spent a while trying to be Joni Mitchell. It even fooled a few people. She seems to be quite comfortable in the persona that she's built very consciously around herself. And yes, it has evolved with her as she has grown as a person. But I think she had enough space in that particular jacket to grow into. I think we'll be dealing with Alana Del Rey in 20 years' time who's still doing this stuff with a minor variance. And that's fine. You know, <laughs> If I want Lana Del Rey, yeah. I'll listen to Lana Del Rey. Lana Del Rey, I think she's going to have a Stones-type career where she's just going to continue making this stuff forever for her, her target audience. She wants legitimacy. 
but she doesn't want to really develop her project. Uh, yeah, it's not a bad thing if you don't outgrow an artist or you grow away from an artist. That's not a bad thing at all. If that is what reminds you of a time in your life that you enjoyed, and those are the people that are going to continue to be going to Lana Del Rey concerts with their grandkids and their long hipster beards turning grey. <laughs> so, Holly, the end of this show. I will say this briefly. Chemical by Post Malone. did actually chart a little bit higher but I decided we had something else in the charts that was a little bit more on theme and if Post Malone is still in the charts by the time we do the next chart episode we will get to make fun of him too for now I'm sorry to say back to David Guerra with Baby Don't Hurt Me Okay, so I did actually send you a YouTube video of David Guetta discussing the background to Baby Don't Hurt Me. Remember when we were discussing Blue on our very first episode, I by do. also by David Guetta, and I was wondering who the target audience possibly even was for this? It turns out the target audience is in fact Ed Sheeran. <laughs> who went to see him play and was just absolutely losing his mind to Blue and dancing around on the stage and went up to Getter to tell him how much he loved the song. And out of that conversation, they agreed to do something together. Baby Don't Hurt Me was one of the songs that Ed Sheeran wrote with him. Now, last week, we had the experience of comparing Sheeran to those who mimic him, the ones who come along in his stead, and he looked so good in comparison to them. I came away with a really warm <laughs> feeling about Sheeran after that, and had he come up in general conversation, I would have said, you know what, actually, he's really quite good at what he does. That information makes me lose a lot of the respect. It gets throwing out the front door of my brain like Jazzy Jeff by Uncle Phil and the Fresh Prince. It's <laughs> minus track. Damn it, Sheeran, I still like you, but oh my God. <laughs> but anyway, this is a song that is outdated on multiple different axes. Let's just follow the sample chain down, shall we? So at the root of this, we have What Is Love by Hadaway, a 1993 classic German pop song. This wasn't necessarily something that super stood out at the time, but if you go back and listen to those old um, Top of the Pops episodes that from 1993, which they recently televised, you can probably still get them on iPlayer. Mm -hmm. You'll realise just how heads and shoulders above everything else What Is Love really is. It's a beautiful song. It's really well performed. It's super minimalist and still sounds like something that was thrown together in a bedroom. The vocal from it is just taken off one of those Zero G CDs. Which were sample CDs that just had these little vocal clips and things that everybody used. It fit in the dance floor, but it was also marketed as a soul song. It's got this kind of heartbreaking melody to it, which I love, the sadness on the dance floor. The basic conceit of it, which is expressed in like slightly wonky English, the singer doesn't know what love is anymore because the person he loves keeps crushing his spirit. 
I will defend it all day. I think it's one of the greatest pop songs ever. After What Is Love, one very important cultural product existed, the Saturday Night Live sketches, the Night of the Roxbury characters, who were just like a bunch of loathsome men who drive around in their car trying to pick up girls and failing. Wow. I am having a hell of a time! Between these sketches, they would be blasting What Is Love in the car and doing this funny little head bob dance. That is important. After that, and this is before internet memes were any good, in fact this was so long ago that this was before they were called internet memes and they were called fads instead, there was a popular internet meme which just synced up a gif of the head bobbing with a loop of what is love, um, which was on the website ytmnd.com. You're the man now dog, you're the man now dog, you're the man now dog. No, I'm, I'm far too young for this nonsense. Well, the song had a bit of a resurgence with, like, young internet-y teens. And off the back of that, the sample made its way into one of the best pop rap crossover records of the 2010s. <laughs> Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Young money. Yeah. Um, what we're talking about is Eminem's recovery album, an album made very much with the eye not only on the commercial charts, which it conquered after people had written him off after the very druggy, very silly, and a lot of fun encore. Britney Spears has sold us like a man, and I can say that in your lap because that is a puppet on my hand. <laughs> and the extremely hyper focused on being unpleasant relapse. I was born with a dick in my brain. Yeah, fucked in the head. My stepfather said that I sucked in the bed. It was down to Eminem to prove that not only could he be a huge commercial success like Beyonce, but also continue to be a great spitter, an amazing rapper. That's something that's always been a concern of his on this song. First of all, what you hear is the sound of Lil Wayne freestyling, which is one of the great gifts that recorded music has given us. <laughs> Wayne is perfect on this song. Um, he manages to find these pockets in that um, Eurodance beat that are just like rhythmic structures that do not exist. I think about more than I forget, but I don't go around fire expecting not to sweat. And these niggas know I lay them down, make your bed. Bitches try to kick me while I'm down, I break your leg. It's also really beautiful in terms of the way the two rappers play off each other, which is that they're both really good, but in ways that the other cannot even possibly do. The first sound you actually hear in No Love is the sound of Wayne hitting his blunt, while Eminem, who had quit drugs for good at this point, you just hear him singing happily in the background. sort of prevents Eminem from having to be a condescending recovered addict, you know? He's still in awe of Wayne's opioid rap, while Wayne is cheering on Eminem as he goes into sober, caffeinated hyperspeed. They call me a freak cause I like to spit on these pussies before I eat them. Man, get these whack cocksuckers off stage, where the fuck is Kanye when you need them? 
Eminem approaches his rapping like an extra layer of percussion on the beat, and he delivers it like a rock drummer who's just on the verge of doing a colossal drum fill. But also with Eminem, you get a greater level of emotional intensity than Wayne can do. You get this heartbreaking spirit to him, the idea of him as this abused child who's sort of become strong. It's a little too late to say that you're sorry yeah. now. You kicked me when I was down, but what you say just don't hurt you also get one of his favourite tricks, which is those great big dangling enjambments. And this is one of the things that people criticise Eminem's later rapping for, is that it sounds sort of choppy and disjointed. And that's because he starts pushing these enjambments out, which was something he always did. The point where you need the rhyme to actually be able to make sense of it as complete sentences. And you can never break my stride. You never slow the momentum in any moment about the blow. You never take my pride, killing the flow. Slow venom in the opponent is getting no mercy. Mark my words. It's just like an extreme version of what he was doing earlier. But if you were just hearing this on the radio, I guess it would be a bit confusing. In relapse and going into recovery, it was the first time that he was noticeably doing something that was generally new with the rhythm. Whereas before he had become quite the great synthesizer of his influences. When he cleaned up and he went through his recovery, he started hearing a way to hit against the beat that he hadn't previously done. Whereas before there had been the solidness of the bed of sound beneath him. This kind of music, use it and you get introduced it. Whenever you hear some shit and you can't refuse it, it's just some shit with these kids that trash their rules with. Just refuse whenever they ask to do shit. Now, what you hear him start to do, and it's something that he's continued to develop, is to bounce around the beat. Because I feel like the beast of burden, that line in the sand, was it even worth it? Because the way I see people turning is making it seem worthless. It's starting to defeat the purpose. I'm watching my fan base shrink to thirds, and I was just trying to do the right thing. But word has the court of public opinion reached a verdict. We're still yet to be determined, because I'm determined to be me. Critique the worship. But back to No Love. The No Love sample is perfect for both men for completely different reasons. Wayne at this point was mostly known for putting out these incredible mixtapes where he would just rap over all kinds of shit, pop instrumentals, hip-hop instrumentals, whatever, it didn't matter to him. So of course he'd be rapping over a Eurodance instrumental. Meanwhile, Eminem always had kind of a thing about taking these incredibly kitschy samples. Bunched up in a ball, bunched up nice and comfy. Fuck around, get dumped in a lake for you dumb me. You cunning little cunt, deceit for which you thought you had me. Till my shrink told me this. The problem is all inside your head, she said to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. 
as part of his sense of humour. So it makes sense for him to recontextualise this brilliant but rather light love song and turn it into a song about how they have no love for the people who abused them when they were coming up, the people who didn't believe in them, the whack MCs, the generic enemies of a million rap songs. And obviously, rhythmically, it works because of that particular sort of almost chachio sort of rhythm. Da, 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 you can do pretty much anything on the top of that and it will sound good, which is part of why both Wayne and Eminem are able to find totally different pockets in it. And they don't sound in competition with each other, which is no. madness. Because they, just think... they just sound like old friends who are just enjoying each other's presence. Yeah. And then because it was on recovery... David Getter has an excuse, and I'm sure Ed Sheeran brought up on yes. this song. Ed Sheeran, an Eminem collaborator of unfortunate repeat, <laughs> um, <laughs> also a friend of Eminem's friend, Elton John. And also, I don't know how much of this is like real and how much of this is just like pop star incest, but Getter's behaviour towards Eminem as of late has been the behaviour of someone who is insufficiently worried about what his name rhymes with because he went viral with a song that he performed at a club which had an AI clip of Eminem rapping and he was saying that he went to chat GPT and asked it for some rap lyrics about future rave in the style of Eminem and my comment at the time was that if you think the lyric, this is the future rave sound, I'm getting awesome and underground is something that could be described as in the style of Eminem you were revealing why Eminem does not work with you. Getta is someone who does not really have a history of respecting the rapping ability of the rappers he works with. He worked with Snoop Dogg and he had Snoop Dogg sing. He worked with Nicki Minaj, one of the greatest rappers of her generation, and just had her sing badly. He does not have any of the appreciation for words. And I expect that's part of the reason why Eminem has not worked with this man yet. I get the sense that Getter wanted to and that working with Coyle Ray and Ed Sheeran and using a sample that was a famous Eminem sample seems to be his attempt to get closer to that than his stupid future rave sound digital facsimile. Oh, by the way, Eminem's beloved daughter, Haley spends a lot of time on her podcast talking about how much she hates AI art, so it's difficult to imagine her and Daddy not just winding each other up over the phone about that one. Yeah, no, David Getter is like Michael Bay. It's just got nothing but histrionics. I mean, Getter is a cannibal. He's a pornographer. He's... <laughs> He was born the same year as my dad. He's a blood-sucking Nosferatu, just repurposing culture and other people's ideas in the most disgustingly shallow way. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, um, 
David Guetta feels like he's older than my dad, even though I don't think he is. I mean, this is the datedness of it. It's dated in that it's a reference to a dance group from 1993. It's also a reference to a rap song that came out in 2010. And it's also bundled up with this old meme, which is referenced in the music video. They have a funny bit where they go to the club and all the people in the club are doing the head bouncing dance from the animated GIF from like 2007. It's, uh, I said that I'm Blue sounded like something that should have come out in the early 2010s. And I guess it is for the Sheerans of the world. It's um, millennials in their 30s who, who haven't updated their compass. But the thing is, I don't think the song is completely worthless. Everything David Guetta is doing in the production booth is awful. It is barely above getting an AI program to do it. Right. It's it's as if Holly he has asked for an AI to expand on a famous painting. That's what this song is. Yes. However, I do actually like the girl singers he put on it. He even has like a, a sort of cross-race duo where the white artist provides the emotional complexity and the sort of narrative of the song. And the black artist is a lot looser and more playful. Yeah. And it does feel like it's an attempt to recreate the Eminem Lil Wayne chemistry. Anne-Marie is singing lyrics written for her by Ed Sheeran, so they're better than they have any business being. But they're still kind of stupid and like in a bad way. I want you for the dirty and clean When you're waking in your dreams Make me bite my tongue and make me scream It doesn't go with the hook. The hook is still don't hurt me no more. But if, she, if she's getting off on being hurt, then what is going on here? You know, also, like, no one likes hearing Ed Sheeran write about sex. It's always gross. Yeah. And you can feel that grossness coming through. But I think Anne-Marie actually does a pretty good performance with what material she's got. I like Anne-Marie. I do. There's a basic likability about her. There's a sort of a sunniness, which I think a song like this does need. I'm pleased that you've seen also that same similarity with Little Wayne and Toy Ray because I thought of that even when she came out yeah. with her players. I could hear that influence. Yeah. Coil Ray here is doing the triplet flow that everyone does now. But interestingly enough, the triplet flow is actually something that Wayne was doing on No Love. So it feels like her verse is almost in communication with that. She barely actually raps though. She is mostly kind of singing in a rhythmic style. Um, she actually does have a really strong singing voice. She would be good enough to carry this whole song on her own, but I'm guessing that as a proud rapper, she is not someone who'd be willing to sing Ed Sheeran's lyrics. The attempt to change the Don't Hurt Me into like a kind of song about a relationship that is good is just stupid. It just doesn't work. And I hold Ed Sheeran responsible for that. It's possible that he was expecting um, Getter to do something else with the hook than what he actually did, which was leave it intact from the Hadaway original. Yeah, no, you can't go into collaborating with David Getter expecting him to bring something new to the table, Ed. What are you doing? So I, I'm assuming Ed is getting that bag. Um, I do hope Coilerae got paid handsomely for this. I think she deserves money. She's the best part of this. Um, Easily. Uh... Her sung rap section is far too short. Oh, God, yes. Like, I don't even think they give her a full 16 bars in this. Might be 14 bars. 
It's horrible. <laughs> and when she's doing it, you're like, oh, this is a song, isn't it? And then it goes back to the generic mush that we've uh, endured so far. Yeah. My opinion on Baby Don't Hurt Me is it's kind of a curate's egg. It's mostly rotten, but there's Coil Ray on it. And it reminds me of a bunch of songs I do like. And um, I guess that's, that's substituted for enjoyment nowadays in our very heavily nostalgic society. <laughs> Did the piece of art you've just consumed remind you of art that you liked? Five stars. Thank you for reminding me how good the, the two best rappers of all time are at their jobs. Thanks, David. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So which song do you choose out of these as your pick of the week, Dolly? I guess like I'm pretty much obligated to pick Cha 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 um, because that's the one I actually paid 60p or something to vote for. I am going to be a little bit antagonistic and I'm going to choose Lana Del Rey. All right. Just because I think it stands out in a way that I'd love to hear some more difference going on with the charts just now. So, yeah, that's that's my one. <laughs> Maybe you could go back and listen to the charts in 2015. They all sounded like that. Yeah, well, we, we'll probably get there at some point. All right, yeah. So we still need to take our little trek to the 90s, though. Yes, it's sighting times. Maybe we'll catch Hadaway on the way down. <laughs> Do your Hadaway line, Ollie. Oh, yeah. What person called it Baby Don't Hurt Me by David Guetta, Anne-Marie and Coyle Ray, and not Hadaway and Shite? Thanks very much for listening. We look forward to seeing you in the 90s. <laughs> Goodbye. I see visions of our dream.